This is John Halsman, and welcome to the latest Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new era we find ourselves in. And uh, we're in the dog days of summer. I'm sitting here at my desk, uh, just did some work, wrote an article for Conservative Home on why continuing to support Ukraine is an utterly counterproductive idea that'll be out tomorrow. What I'm really waiting on to share with you, hopefully next week, is the time when the pre-order for the book can begin and we can get you guys in our community signed up to pre-order The Last Best Hope. Yes, we're almost there. Time for the pre-order, The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism, what I hope will be a historic book that fuses together the various wings of the Republican Party around realism. And it should be up on Amazon, we hope, in the next few days. I will absolutely let you know about that. And as we go along, we're going to do a semi-regular series on what I was thinking about when I was writing the book, rather than what the book says, what was actually going through the writer's head as I was writing. I think this could be a fun and interesting way to really double down on the book. So we'll start that series and we'll take it chapter by chapter. But again, look forward to the pre-order. And again, everybody buy 10 of them <laughs> in the community. But it's really great that we've reached this point And I'm so proud of the work. And I want to share that with you and, and get that out there into the market as fast as we can. But ahead of that, an interesting thing in the dog days, often there are these little little rumblings that are interesting, has come about. If you're in the Joe Biden White House right now, these are the dog days of the presidency as well as of summer. On foreign policy, you certainly don't have a lot to show for what you've done. Uh, the Afghan withdrawal was, to put it mildly, an unmitigated disaster, although the withdrawal itself was long overdue, a decade overdue, more than a decade overdue, the way it was done, I think we can all agree, was an utter catastrophe. And really, from that point on, Joe Biden's presidency, in terms of his approval numbers, hit the skids and haven't, hasn't really recovered from this staggering act of incompetence uh, in getting out of Afghanistan. Uh, there's that. Uh, for all his criticisms of Donald Trump, Joe Biden hasn't undone the Trump policy to China, the single most important event out there. In fact, he's left all the sanctions on, continued to work with allies to try to build up a deterrence so China doesn't make a lunge for Taiwan. He's followed exactly in Trump's dramatic change in dealing with this. And so although he's done the right thing, it's not a new thing, so no credit for that. So black mark for Afghanistan, no credit uh, for China uh, in terms of politics. At the same time, the JCPOA, the vaunted uh, deal, totally overrated deal with his to totally overrated presidency of Barack Obama, uh, Biden thought he could easily put this back together with the Iranians. And of course, that's not true. A much harder line Iran Iranian government under Raisi, a man who prosecuted any people outside the regime and was called the butcher of Tehran because so many of these people were sentenced to death. He's now running the country. Uh, day to day as, as, the, as the president and uh, doesn't want a deal. Why should he? And so Biden has been unable to put back together the Middle East peace program of Obama, which he thought he could easily do. Another black mark there. And Ukraine, which uh, I think he was hoping would make him look good, as you'll see in my article tomorrow in Conservative Home, is increasingly a concern for the Biden administration. The offensive is failing um, as we said, our first political risk prediction of the year in our traditional City AM predictions of January 1st, we said that we would be at a stalemate and neither side would break through this year. And boy, we got that one on the money. And as a result, Biden has given them every manner of weaponry, 
between 80 and 110 billion dollars in unaccounted for American money and Ukraine isn't winning. And so as this drags on longer and longer, this this gets near to being one of these forever wars that is increasingly unpopular. So if you're the Biden foreign policy team and you're looking around the world, there isn't a lot to celebrate about. Huge black mark over Afghanistan, more of the same on China, even though right, can't get the JCPOA back together. So the Middle East policy is on hold. And Ukraine goes from being a triumph to a great concern, as despite unaccounted for $100 billion, Zelensky and Co. still can't break through. So with all this, Biden is looking to shake things up. He needs something to go to the American public with, with Donald Trump, according to Real Clear Politics, already level pegging with him, despite being indicted every other day of the week. And as a result of this, he needs a victory in foreign affairs. And so there's been movement in the last few days. An interesting confluence of events has occurred. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor and really the big thinker in the Biden team, the, the major Wilsonian on board, who is the theoretical and practical guide, he's been sent off to Saudi Arabia to talk to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. At the same time, Israel's intelligence chief has come to the United States. And, you know, the toing and froing of foreign dignitaries is what I do with my life. You go and you meet people, you keep talking, you're constantly doing this. And so it's not surprising that they'd meet up. What is surprising is the story that has been leaked to Tom Friedman of the New York Times, obviously the House newspaper of the Biden administration, unabashedly in the tank for the Wilsonians and the Democrats, the friendliest leak you could imagine. And basically Biden has floated a putative deal for the Middle East. And as Friedman says, if the deal, the one thing I agree about in the Friedman article is if the deal were to come to pass, it would mark the biggest change strategically in the region, at least since Camp David. And the outlines of the deal that Friedman, one assumed, got from a friendly source, maybe, maybe Jake Sullivan himself, it goes as such. Um, Israel would, would, re would reopen talks with the Palestinians, which have been in a deep freeze. In return, they would have also tighter restrictions on their settlements the Saudis would normalize relations with Israel, and the U.S. would sign a mutual defense pact with Saudi Arabia. Now, let's look at, let's say that again so you get an idea of how huge this is. For Israel's part, it would have to reopen talks with the Palestinians, and it would have to place very tight restrictions on Israeli settlements. At the same time, the U.S. would sign a mutual defense pact with Saudi Arabia. A mutual defense pact is like Article 5 with NATO, all for one and one for all. Think of the three musketeers and Alexandre Dumas. This means that an attack on Saudi Arabia would mean, in essence, an attack on the United States. It's similar to the AUKUS defense agreement, mutual defense agreement, recently reached with Australia and the UK out in the Indo-Pacific. But it would be one more tripwire where America would pretty much automatically have to come to their allies' uh, aid. And in return for all this, the Saudis would normalize relations with Israel. So in essence, from an Israeli point of view, Netanyahu is being challenged. You can either have settlements or peace in the Middle East with the region, but you can't have both. At the same time, the Saudis would get out of this deal for normalizing relations with Israel, which would be unpopular in many corners of their conservative country. They would get in return a defense pact with the United States, a tripwire where the United States would absolutely come to their defense, whatever, as well as the United States sharing nuclear technology for peaceful purposes with Saudi Arabia. 
and in return, the United States would sweeten the deal by recognizing the Saudis. Wow. This would, in a stroke, change almost everything. And like most Wilsonian ideas, it's strong on big picture and weak the minute you actually look at the paint dry and look at the details. Here are the zillion reasons. This is a very bad idea indeed. Before I start, though, and this is great because I'm going to be doing this with the book, we've come up with nine precepts, nine realist precepts in The Last Best Hope, where we look in detail at how America should run a realist foreign policy in the 21st century. Basic ideas that can unite the Republican Party, conservatives everywhere, around a realist view moving forward, and then operationalize these ideas to make sense of the world that we live in. Yes, indeed, it's our revolver. <laughs> if to dare more boldly, for those of you who love the Beatles, if to dare more boldly were rubber soul, uh, the last best hope is revolver. I don't see a great difference between the two, except that we revolutionize political risk itself. That's the short answer like the Beatles were trying to do with music. That's exactly what I'm trying to do in an unabashedly honest way about political risk. Two of our precepts come into play immediately over Biden's plan and why this is a very bad idea. Our first precept is alliances should only be entered into when they address specific and primary American interests. That entering into a formal alliance is a very serious thing indeed and should only be entered into when it advances specific and primary American interests. This does not meet that standard at all. And we'll get to that. And then the eighth precept of our nine is that the U.S. must be ruthlessly prepared to cut deals with the devil, as we did with Stalin, as we did with Mao correctly, and certainly as many on the left and some on the right would say we would be doing with Saudi Arabia, coming to terms with these less-than-savory countries that don't share our values, if doing so furthers U.S. interests. Well, I'm all for the first part. We do have to do deals with the devil, that working with Stalin and Mao, the Charles Manson and Ted Bundy of international relations, was precisely, morally, and practically the right thing to do for the United States in winning World War II and the Cold War, respectively. But this deal with the Saudis, who certainly don't share our interests, um, doesn't meet that standard at all. Why? The only question that matters in political risk, as you guys know, I think, is why. Why is that? Well, let's go through the deal in some, in some degree of looking at why this, this is a very bad idea. Okay, in terms of dealing with the devil, a mutual defense pact, an Article 5 guarantee for the, for the Saudis. There are two objections to this. One is a very practical um, objection of politics. One is a uh, policy-driven objection that this is a terrible idea. And then lastly, I suppose there's a third one. It's philosophical as to why this is a bad idea. Practically, to get a mutual defense pact through a uh, treaty um, enacted, uh, two-thirds of the Senate would have to agree to this. Two-thirds of the Senate is not going to agree to a deal with the Saudis. Uh, both the left wing of the Democratic Party, neoconservatives, and even some realists like myself would think this is a bad idea and vote no. Two-thirds is a very high bar, and that's why the founders would agree with me about alliances only being entered into when they suit specific American interests. That's supposed to be a high bar. We're not supposed to enter into formal, non-ending alliances unless it suits our interests forever. And so the political reason is they're not going to get the two-thirds. They're whistling past the graveyard if they think they are. The second reason is what a dumb idea this is. 
Do we really want to be bound in perpetuity to the Saudis? Is that really the best way to further stability in, in, in the Middle East, a region notorious for its wars, its constant wars? Do we want to have no choice but to stay out of a war in the Middle East if we wish to? The Saudis aren't going to cease being our allies. Nobody's saying we shouldn't continue providing them with defense wherewithal, work with them even strategically on matters in the Middle East, where more often than not, we agree. But let's not forget that under Mohammed bin Salman, the, the Saudis have drifted to a position more of neutrality. The deal they struck with Iran, although cosmetic, uh, was struck with the Chinese. The, the Saudis have on numerous occasions through OPEC and OPEC Plus continue to lower the amount of oil out there so they can raise prices and they could care less if that hurts the American taxpayer. They have money to make. That's fine. That's their interest. But that isn't somebody doing our bidding. We don't get a whole lot out of this. So we're already allies with the Saudis. Why do we have to in perpetuity say we will defend them, whatever the situation, whatever comes in an Article 5 manner? And that leads me to the third point, which is philosophical. Anyone who believes America should not be in the business of being an empire is against these mindless, brain-dead commitments to half the world, where anything that happens to them requires us to immediately fight a war. This is a neoconservative and Wilsonian fantasy, that on the stealth and on the cheap, you can sign mutual defense pacts that rob America of its freedom of maneuver, maneuver. You're letting American sovereignty drift away because you're honor bound by treaty to come the to the defense of a series of countries, many of whom are neutralists or are certainly not your rock solid allies. The reason the AUKUS defense agreement passes muster is that the Anglosphere is Sundance to America's Butch Cassidy. The English speaking countries of the world like Butch and Sundance, bicker and they fight, but they always come out shooting together. The five Anglosphere countries, the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, all sided with each other in the World War I, World War II, and the Cold War. 15 separate times they could have done something and 15 times they agreed. Now that's an alliance I don't mind giving a mutual defense agreement to because we're going to fight together anyway. The Saudis are much more a shade of gray than black and white, and we shouldn't be in the business of offering mutual defense commitments to people over shades of gray loyalty to the interests of the United States. This isn't about sweeteners for the Saudis. This is about binding Gulliver to the Lilliputians. Only if Gulliver is witless does he let the Lilliputians bind him. And philosophically, this is an effort to take away any form of American freedom of action in order to give a sweetener to the Saudis. And absolutely for that reason alone, I'm against this idea. The second reason, that, though, that this doesn't really work um, is the flip side of another sweetener the Saudis get. Uh, they get nuclear technology from the United States for peaceful purposes. This is exactly the wording by which India slowly and secretly went about constructing a nuclear program that then turned into a military program, making India a nuclear superpower. The reason they kept the rest of the world at bay for decades was in saying, nothing to look at here. This is just for peaceful civilian uses until it wasn't. What do we think Iran is going to do when it looks at this? You're getting nuclear technology from the Americans? Trust me, the mullahs will be finishing their race to build a bomb as fast as their little legs can carry them, 
And that makes perfect sense, if only for defensive means. But if the Iranians break the, the, the rules on going over the line for a bomb in terms of enrichment above 90%, let's wait and see what Israel does. Such a deal actually destabilizes the regime by forcing the Iranians to a breakneck program to acquire a nuclear weapon to keep up with what they see as the Americans providing the Saudis with technology to do so over time. And we've just destabilized the most unstabilized region in the world. So that's a terrible idea, it seems to me. The third argument as to why this is a bad idea is that it shows no knowledge of what's going on with either the Palestinians or the Israelis. The decrepit, corrupt, sclerotic regime of Abu Mazen, the witless heir to Yasser Arafat, is coming to an end, and he has no obvious successor. Uh, because he's deeply unpopular in the West Bank and especially Gaza, he's given up the habit of even holding elections because he knows he'd lose them. And as he witlessly blunders off history's uh, main stage, leaving the Palestinians far worse than even he found them, the idea that the Palestinians could act coherently in any manner to reach a deal is the height of lunacy. And then secondly, the Israelis. Certainly, and I read a headline to this effect, which is exactly on the money, Netanyahu and his present government, and he said all kinds of governments, he is the Harry Houdini of Israeli politics, getting out of almost every trap. He said centrist governments, he's led national governments of unity, and he's led far right-wing governments, and always he manages to get out of the box. In this case, he's leading a very narrow majority with a far right-wing government. There is no way on God's green earth that the present government of Netanyahu would agree to a deal that would restrain settlement building, as this deal would. So they couldn't deliver either. And if they didn't deliver, meaning the coalition is not set to deliver, it would fall. Netanyahu could lose in a new election and go to jail. He's unlikely to risk going to jail. Basic realist idea is to maintain your life and your liberty if you're a leader. He's hardly likely to risk going to jail in order to do this deal. So there would have to be some sort of new government of national unity, or this is also a dead letter at the start. And the fourth reason, and this was said to me by Dennis Ross, who's a veteran Democratic uh, negotiator in the Middle East, uh, well worth listening to. One of the things Dennis said to me a million years ago was, we can't want peace in the Middle East more than they do. And I think this is true around the world. We can't want European security over Ukraine more than the Europeans do. We can't want one peace in the Middle East more than the Middle Easterners do. We can't want alliances in the Indo-Pacific more than the people there do. The reason the last one is working is they actually want to be America's allies organically. We act like we're the only game in town, but there's another entity that we're interacting with. And in, in, in two of these cases, and certainly in the Middle East, we seem to want a peace deal more than they do. And that is a gigantic problem, meaning we shouldn't be in the business of providing sweeteners to anybody to do this deal. Why in the world should we? The Abram Accords, the great success of Donald Trump, was, an, was a recognition that the, the Palestinian-Israeli negotiations were a dead end, which for 25 years had stopped anyone thinking creatively about normalizing relations in the region, and that we'd simply go around it. And immediately Bahrain and the UAE and Sudan and Morocco uh, Jordan have all gone around it and reached deals with Israel. They didn't do this because they love the Israelis any more than the day before. They did it because it was in their interest to do so. 
More importantly, the UAE and Bahrain, the little brothers on the Arabian Peninsula, would never, ever have agreed to this deal if the Saudis hadn't winked and nodded it through, meaning the Saudis allowed that to happen, allowed the Gulf states, whom they dominate politically, to go ahead with this deal. So the Saudis already have one foot half in for doing a deal with Israel. We don't need to be in the business of providing sweeteners that limit our autonomy about a de facto alliance that is emerging any, anyway. The Middle East, the enemy of your enemy is your friend. The common enemy is obviously Iran, which grows in power and confidence to the detriment of who? The Saudis and the Israelis more than anyone, so they're thrown together anyway. The Saudis are desperate for Israeli investment. The Israelis are desperate for normalization of relations. Organically, this is a relationship that over time and everything in the Middle East takes longer than the rest of us would like. Over time, this is going to happen anyway. We don't need to be in the business of caring more about it happening than the people on the ground. Let it happen organically without giving up anything and we'll be in a far better position, much as occurred over the Abram Accords, the, the, the Donald Trump rightly struck and is seen as rightly, along with the China policy, the two great foreign policy successes of his administration. So for all these reasons, Biden's putative Middle East deal is a very bad idea. Again, let's go back to the two principles in our book, The Last Best Hope. One, principle one, alliances should only be entered into when they advance and address specific and primary American interests, meaning the bar is very high indeed, as George Washington and Alexander Hamilton put into place. Well, it doesn't meet that standard. This doesn't address American interests. It addresses Saudi interests, perhaps Israeli interests, but not American interests. So it fails in that point. And then number eight, the U.S. need not needs to be ruthlessly prepared to cut deals with the devil, coming to terms with less than savory countries, if doing so furthers U.S. interests. I wholeheartedly agree to the first supposition that we do. In the case of Stalin and Mao, it was vital but I don't agree to the second that this furthers American interests. Merely, it ties the American Gulliver down, taking away his sovereignty in the most volatile region in the world. That's a very bad idea. Even if you are desperate for a win at almost all costs, Biden has to be stopped from making this thing, this monster, a reality. Thank you very much. Really fun to do this one with you on why Biden's putative Middle East deal is a very bad idea. Again, very exciting days ahead. The book, uh, will be, uh, the uh, article will be out from Conservative Home on my Ukraine update. That'll be up on LinkedIn tomorrow. And then very happily, uh, we get into The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism, what I hope will be our historic book and a huge thing for our community. Pre-ordering will be allowed on Amazon within the week, and we will let you know and inaugurate our semi-regular series on what in the world was I thinking about as I was writing this book which again, I see as my revolver. Anyway, thank you very, very much. And for those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. And for those of you who have, please do give the $70 so we can keep them coming in these very busy, exciting, and creative times. Stick with us. Take care. Bye.